You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You've already spent days yelling at your TV, at your radio, at your phone every time you think about the results you got over the weekend in the NFL. But now, midway through the week, now it's a time to look ahead. And that means it's time to look at who's under the most pressure going into week two. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests are going to join us on the Goodyear Hotline, and you guys can be a part of Spain and Fitz Nation on the Dr. Pepper Twitter feed, ESPN Nation, presented by Dr. Pepper. College football's back, so the fans return to glory with Fansville by Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Sarah, obviously we're going to ask everybody to chime in on that Twitter feed, at Sarah Spain, at Uh Jason Fitz. As we go into week two, It's always too early to say one week can define a season, but a two-week hole in an NFL season can be incredibly difficult to dig out of, if not impossible. So as much as I don't want to overreact, I think there are a laundry list of teams going in to week two that find themselves with their backs against the wall. Yeah, I agree. It's it's not like college football, right, where we can point to the number of times a team has lost one or two games and been out of it. We certainly look at a, a division like the NFC North, and it's it's kind of tough to pick a team from there because they all lost, right? So you're not going to be too far behind, even if you take a second L. But, for instance, the Packers and the Vikings, those are two teams you might put up there. They are in that NFC North. But the Vikings, for any expectations to push the Packers at all, they're going to have to show up and perform a lot better than they did in week one. And they've got a really tough matchup with the Cardinals. On the other hand, the Packers get the Lions. So in theory, that should be an easy way to reverse what happened in week one. And if they don't, now we're really freaking out about whether the Packers are running away with that division or even just winning it at all if they can't beat Detroit. Yeah, I think part of the pressure comes in from the expectations, right? And so for any team that walked into week one and didn't perform the way they wanted to, you don't have a lot of time to write that. And you don't have a lot of time to figure things out. You know, I, I look at specific uh, groupings, too. You know, when I think about the the Bills, a team, you know, I was so high on, part of that was because of their offense, right? And so when their offense looks as dreadful as it does, I don't think there's just pressure to win the game against the Dolphins. I think there's also pressure to come out and perform the way we expect Josh Allen and this offense to perform. Mm -hmm. We expect them to be explosive, and if they're not, then sure, we can have a great conversation about the the Steelers' defense, but realistically, I think if you're the Bills, you got to look at it and say, where are we getting this offense from? If you're the Ravens, who you know we've talked about so much about uh, the last couple of days about that Raiders game, well, the Ravens are beat up everywhere, and you know, frankly, I don't think they were playing a great Raiders defense. We know that. But now they have to play the Chiefs on Sunday night. I mean, I don't know how easy it is to dig out of an 0-2 hole for a team like Baltimore that is in a division with Cleveland where they're going to have to keep pace with a very good Browns team. Yeah, I completely agree. A lot of it, of course, is not just the actual result and starting off the season 0-2, but it's also obviously, you know, who are you playing and how big of a blow will it be to not be able to beat that team if you should. For instance, I agree with you. It's tough if the Ravens get an 0-2 hole. But if they lose to the Chiefs, I don't think people are going to change their opinions about the Ravens all that much. They're going to say, okay, Chiefs were kind of expected to beat everyone they face. And unless the Ravens look like a disaster, we're going to be waiting for that third week to figure out what they have with a little more time with Latavius Murray, with a little more time with Le'Veon Bell, right? Versus, for instance, like I mentioned, the Packers, who should beat that Lions team. Um, And I would say maybe the Cowboys, who had that, you know, 
moral victory, even though a lot of people don't like to say that in that incredible, you know, opening night game against the Bucks. A lot of people would expect them to beat a Chargers team, even if that Chargers team has taken steps forward. And a lot of people believe in Justin Herbert. It was not a very good Chargers team in terms of result last year. They lost a lot of close ones, but they still, their record was their record. And I think if the Cowboys lose that one and fall to 0-2, then you start to have the same doubt you had at the beginning of the season about just how good they could be, even with Dak back. Yeah, how good they can be is such a big part of this conversation. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. And, you know, I, I think about the Colts. Again, a team I thought was very good, but a team that lost to the Seahawks, right? And and you can excuse that loss. But now they get the Rams again. And it's going to be hard at some point. Like, you, we've got to decide where we are on a team like the Colts, right? Because it's excusable to lose to a team like the Rams. It's excusable to lose to the Seahawks. But not if you're supposed to be in the same conversation is those teams. So that's also an interesting element to me. You know, I look at the, the Titans, uh, you know, any other time you'd say, well, if the Titans start their season with losses to the Cardinals and Seahawks, that's not the end of the world. But it is mm-hmm. if we thought that the Titans were supposed to be a division champion caliber team. So that's another complication in all of this. It's like the expectation we had and who they're supposed to be running with when we look at their wins and losses. Yeah, I'm going to put up the poll now, Fitz, and see what people think, because I think how you vote on which team needs the win the most is not just the division and how it's shaping up, but instead what your expectations were for that team and how drastically that will change if they start 0-2. I've got to split it up in half because we've been talking about eight different teams here. So I'm going to start at Spain and Fitz, at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz is where you can find us with the, uh, the first four, so Packers, Titans, Cowboys, Bills. And then the second half will be Browns, Ravens, Vikings, Colts. Um, Obviously, people are going to have, you know, oh, you should have put these together. I would have voted these two. It's Twitter. This is the best we're going to do, y'all. But what would you vote if you had those two pairings? The first pairing, let's start with that. Who needs it most, Packers, Titans, Cowboys, or Bills? Yeah, I. Ooh, I was and again, so Packers versus the Lions, it's Titans versus it's... the Seahawks, Cowboys versus uh, the Clip, uh, the Clippers. That would be an interesting one. The Chargers yeah. and the Bills versus the Dolphins. Yeah, no, I'm going to go Packers because the Lions are, are just god awful, and if the Packers mm-hmm. start zero and two with a loss in that one, it's gross. You agree with that? Completely agree, and because of all of the offseason and because of the hysterical and frankly funny conspiracy theories about Aaron Rodgers coming back to play only to intentionally tank the team. I mean, it, 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 all of that heats up if they go 0-2 and, and if it's because of a loss to Detroit. Yeah, and the, just the concept. I mean, I don't even want to give that the justice that it, it seems yeah, to yeah, want yeah. in the process of it. Okay, uh, the but, second half. You got to vote on the second half. It's going to be the Browns against the Texans, the Ravens versus KC, the Vikings versus the Cardinals, or the Colts versus the Rams. I I think again because it's a bad opponent. It's Browns versus. Got to be Texas, the Browns, right? Like Completely the Browns, agree. The Browns have to and win. so maybe it's less about expectation as it is about you know you need to get these because if you don't get these, uh, it's going to be a long season for you. Yeah, because we we would excuse the the Browns for losing to the Chiefs, obviously, but we can't excuse this quickly. Adam Schefter gave us this update earlier on ESPN Radio about the Browns and the fact that it doesn't seem like they're pressing to get Odell Beckham Jr. back on the field. I think that he's still in that spot, no setbacks, but before he's back, uh, they want to make sure he's right. Plus, let's be honest, they're playing the Houston Texans this week. There's no reason that they shouldn't be able to win that game without Odell, give him another week, uh, allow him to be really comfortable before he's brought back. And so Kevin Stefanski made the decision today and just basically came out and ruled him out in the middle of the week. Hey, not going to play, 
no setbacks, uh, still on course to return here pretty soon, and shouldn't be long now before he's back on the field. What's interesting, Sarah, that, Fitz. Go ahead. No, that either speaks to confidence or it speaks to maybe who they are as a team. Well, that's what I was going to say is either they're like, listen, I feel pretty good about this. Let's not rush him back if he's not ready. Or speaking of conspiracies, people were pretty hot on the idea that this was a team that was better off without him. Is Baker Mayfield a better quarterback without ODB? And that could be them saying, listen, we don't need to rush. We're still not certain that this is a good fit. I'm not the one to believe that. I think it's about playing it safe and and waiting for him to be fully ready. But that was a very definitive decision on a Wednesday. I'm pretty sure you just went ODB to instead of OBJ. So oh, I, I yeah, this is a thing that I do. I think during Spain and company, we went over it. I insist on calling him ODB instead of OBJ. And then people say, no, that's old, dirty bastard. I'm like, I prefer it and I like it. And so I stick with it. I, and look, I just like the imagery of, of ODB trying to get out there and run some routes. That's all I was thinking about. And it was spectacular. <laughs> Speaking of um, spectacular. Especially because he is no longer with us. Yeah, I, I, well, that's So that would be especially strange if ODB was out there running routes. Is it um, a hologram? In my in my head, this is all this is all such incredible magic. Maybe Tupac's covering him. Okay. Uh, speaking of incredible imagery, we saw something today from one of our peers that you'll we'll never forget. We'll tell you about it next. Plus, a huge injury update for one of the biggest teams and the biggest stars in the league. We'll tell you about it on Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Now there's some big injury news. A couple of big injury news. Uh, pieces that are coming out of the NFL. We do have some uh, relatively breaking news. It has been reported now at Jory Epstein reported this Cowboys defensive end Demarcus Lawrence fractured his foot at practice today. Mm. Multiple sources have confirmed to USA Today Sports. Dallas travels to Los Angeles without their best defender out indefinitely and has been pointed out by several people that cover the team. It doesn't sound like it was any sort of an unusual moment at practice. It was a normal drill. Broke his foot, and now a team that uh, struggles to get after the passer, at least through one week, is going to have to try and figure out how to do uh, what they need to do against a very good offense without him on the field. That's going to be difficult. Yeah, the expectation could be up to two months. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, for all we've talked about with the expectations of this team riding almost entirely on a flip in the way we see the defense that allowed a franchise record number of points last season – we saw Fitz. This was an eight and eight team with a healthy deck, and that's not to say that two seasons ago everything was the same as now offensively or defensively. But it's not enough to have the weapons they have on offense. That has been proven. It has to be about defense, and this is a big blow. He's a leader as well as a great player. We'll get to other injury news that's important, but first we have to get to to something uh, even more important. Sarah, did you were, were you hanging out today like I was uh, scrolling through Twitter? Uh, only to find Mina Kimes reveal to the world that Dan Orlovsky has a hidden talent? Yes, it was yesterday that I discovered it. I know you did not find it until today. today. But uh, here's the thing. I saw it pass multiple times on my timeline yesterday when I was in spots where I couldn't listen to the audio. And so I'm trying to figure out based on context clues. And I'm like, I got to watch that later, see what it is. And then the responses from people were so effusive that I'm like, I got to check this out. So by the time I get to a spot where I can listen to the audio, the hype for this is so incredible that I assume I will be let down, that there is no way that this can live up to the number of times it's been shared and reshared and recommented on. And Fitz, it lived up to it. Dan Orlovsky has a talent, and and you're going to have to hear it to believe it. That's that is Dan, Dan Orlovsky. Orlovsky. That yeah. is not 
a dog. It's not a computer-generated noise. It's not from a movie or a TV show. That is Dan Orlovsky's mouth. Play that again for us, guys. Orlovsky's barking. Now, my question is, when you figured out you could do that, why didn't you start marketing that instead of taking hits <laughs> as a quarterback? Like, that's the moment you're like, hey, guys, I've got a special – I've got a very particular set of set skills. Set of skills. Like, yeah. I think you make more on the football stuff, so I think you start with that, and your body's going to let you do the dog thing for, I assume, it's just going to get deeper and growlier the older you get. So he's in for a, a long career of impersonating a dog. It is even quirkier and weirder when you look at his face while he does it because it's so incongruous. It just doesn't seem like it's coming out of him. So I recommend checking it out in full video form. I also would like to thank the one person who said still not as good as Sarah's horse, which uh, reminded me that I did, in fact, impersonate a horse on national television because that was the kind of magic of the show Highly Questionable. You just never knew what you were going to get. Uh, I offer up that Orlovsky's dog is better, but uh, just for the sake of the conversation, here's my horse. <laughs> Give us the horse uh, again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Sarah, like, when did you figure out that you could do that? Uh, okay, at a very young age, uh, I was obsessed with horses. I remain so. Almost every vacation we go on, my poor husband... I, I take us horseback riding and inevitably whoever's leading the horseback ride, you know, brings the horse to my husband and said, this one's named Nutcracker. It's like every time, right? It's like the the joke across all continents is to lead a, a large stallion to a tall man and tell him his horse is named Nutcracker and he's in for a long day. That aside, I've known for my whole life that I was obsessed with horses. In fact, when I was a child, my parents once walked in on me asleep on all fours pretending to be a horse. Okay, that's how much of my time was occupied by personating horses, watching horses, riding horses, talking about horses. Uh, so it was a very young age. And then the occasion arose at a competition at a local nature conservatory to do an animal impression to win a year's membership. I believe I was seven. Uh, I did the horse impression. I did, in fact, win that year's membership. So uh, putting it to use uh, at different points in my life, not as much recently, except for, of course, on Highly Questionable. And so this begs the most important question that I would be asking Dan, but I will ask you because you'll have some insight on it. You are both married to wonderful people. (laughs) How many dates in before you make sure your significant other knows that you have this particular set of skills? Yeah, I think it took me a while. Uh, that was part of my dating issues, I think, when I was younger. Is I wasn't quite sure how long to appear normal before just letting it all hang out. And uh, Brad found out day one that I talk a lot. And there is video proof of that because our first date at Wrigley Field, we were caught on camera. And he already has the face of a man that's like, I cannot sign up for this for the rest of my life. And yet he did. Uh, so that one I can't hide. Uh, and it is deeply true that his face says, and I'll put it on Twitter, his face says, damn, this girl talks a lot. Uh, but he still somehow, some way decided to, to, to agree to marry me. Um, the rest of the weirdness, I saved a lot of it for later. Like, well, a lot of it. I- I'm going to have to text Orlovsky and find out how long it went before he, <laughs> he told his wife. Like, Because that seems like it's a deal breaker. I- I'm just saying. Uh, Do you have any of, other- of those that uh, you had to hide from the wife? Weird talents or things uh, like that? No, I've been pretty like I'm pretty, uh, pretty open about the, the limited things that I do. Like, I don't do very many things. I just make sure that when I do you them, do them well, I, I do them as well as possible. I, I am not 
I'm not what they call like versatile, you know, like jack uh, of all yeah, trades. Opposite of me. Right. That's me. I'm the jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, You're the I'm, master I'm, of a couple. <laughs> I'm the sit in the room by myself and learn one thing really well, guy. Uh, so want to get you caught up on some other big news in the NFL. Giants running back Saquon Barkley is listed as questionable team taking on the Washington football team. But remember, guys, that's a Thursday night game. So obviously this is a little bit of a uh, there, there's a limited expectation. He may play. They're trying to get him to play, but it would be the second time in five days. And he's coming off of major knee surgery. So I, I don't think that we should necessarily overreact to this, but it's a reminder that he's not completely out of the woods, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, and as someone who I will re- continue to bring this up, uh, was forced to auto-draft Saquon as my first pick at third overall. I'm going to be very carefully watching his development. And I'm hoping this is entirely about playing it safe and nothing about a setback. There hasn't been any word of a setback. So that's my hope that it's just saying, hey, too many games in a short number of days. We're going to make sure he's 100% before we put him out there. But um, it's going to be, I think, slower than a lot of us expected for him to come back and really make an impact. And you know who doesn't have time for that? Daniel Jones, he needs his weapons healthy to take some of the heat off of him. Yeah, and that offensive line is so bad. I mean, Saquon being out is such a difference maker. Sarah, I wonder, we use the phrase load management too often in the NBA, but I wonder if we're going to see these these Thursday night games approached really carefully from teams knowing that now we're in a 17-game season and that quick turnaround could be a difference maker. Like, you'd rather have Saquon out for one game and take any risk with him. I just wonder if we're going to see more caution. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think it'll probably depend on the team, though, right, and the depth that they have in various spots because certainly I think we do this every year where at the beginning of the season we hear about injuries. We say, man, it feels like more injuries than ever. And then when you go back, you're like, eh, it's actually about the same. We just forget <laughs> how much attrition there is in football. Uh, but I do think it is going to be dependent on the team, the expectations for the team, the opponent that they have early on, when their bye week is and they might get a rest for guys, then, of course, the depth. Yeah, we all freak out about injuries one time when it happens to our favorite team. Let's be real about that. Coming up, a great playoff race is coming down to the wire. We'll tell you about it with one of our favorite experts next, Spain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Joining us now on the Goodyear Hotline, LaChina Robinson, WNBA analyst and analyst for the Atlanta Dream as well, and happens to be the guest on this week's episode of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. That's right. Shameless plug for my podcast. Great guest. Super interesting. You have to go and listen. Uh, It starts with her growing up with 15 siblings, and it ends uh, with her obsession with notebooks. It's a real wild ride. Uh, We get into everything in between. Um, LaChina, before we even start talking about the wild playoff race in the, the WNBA, I would love for you to remind people of the unique layout and format with the double buy and all that stuff so people know what these teams are fighting for. Yeah, I mean, it was honestly one of the best things the WNBA has done in recent years uh, to make the playoffs and ultimately the finals more competitive is, um, you know, it's the top eight teams basically make the playoffs based on winning percentage. It's no longer, you know, Eastern Conference, Western Conference. I know they've talked about that for the NBA as well. But uh, basically the first two rounds are single elimination. And a lot of people don't like that. You know, they feel like if you make it to the playoffs, you've got the right to play in a series. But for us, it makes like an NCAA tournament environment where it's like win or go home. So the first two rounds are double, are single elimination. And then the semifinals are um, the best of five, and the finals are best of five. So playoffs move really quickly. 
but it's really exciting, again, because it's basically the desperation of, you know, we want to advance in these first couple of rounds. And then the significance of home court advantage obviously comes into play. And there is reseeding after every round as well, Sarah. So that's another aspect of the WNBA playoff um, format that makes it very interesting. Is there a team that you look at that format that you just mentioned and you think, man, this team is built best for this playoff format? 100%. That is the Dallas Wings. Let me tell you, the Dallas Wings are the team in the WNBA that are young, wild, and free. Um, They are uh, one of the youngest, if not the youngest team. New York may have them, but they're one of the youngest teams in the league. And pretty much they are so dangerous because they're very unpredictable. I mean, they're extremely talented, led by Arike Gumbawale, who led the league in scoring last season and is one of the most exciting scorers in the league. Uh, Marina Mabry is uh, one of the more improved players in the league. You know, they're anchored, they're anchored in the post by Kayla Thornton and um, Isabel Harrison. But they're just a, a young team that can really start to gel and be dangerous, but they can also be really bad. Um, Alicia right. Gray is another player that is is fantastic for them. So um, if they get hot, they start talking trash. They have zero respect for the veterans in this in the league, and I say that in the in the most respectful way. <laughs> uh, you know, they off the court probably are like, "Yay, that's Diane Tarazi." On the court, they don't care, and that's one kind of the exciting energy of some of the younger players in the WNBA is that. They respect who you are, but they don't care who you are. And, um, you know, Dallas could really be a team that if they get hot and start hitting three, something they've done well this year, um, they could surprise some people. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to LaChina Robinson, WNBA analyst for ESPN. And you mentioned Enrique Agunbawale. Pretty cool. She is on the cover of the very first W Slam Magazine, issue 001, alongside Diamond DeShields and Benajah Laney. Uh, very first time ever, featuring a whole bunch of other players inside, but a very cool moment on the 25th anniversary of the W. Um, you know, I'm such a Storm fan outside of my Chicago Sky allegiance, so I was bummed to see Brianna Stewart with the injury. And besides her, they've just gotten banged up at the wrong time. They're not the favorite to me anymore. It's all about the Sun, who have won 12 straight and have 13-1 at home. Can anybody stop Connecticut? It's going to be tough. They are playing with a lot of momentum. They're playing with a lot of confidence. And they stay healthy for the most part, and that's, been the key to this season, quite honestly, Sarah, as you mentioned the storm. I mean, what a nightmare situation to be without Brianna, to be without Jordan Canada at this point, where everyone wants to be playing their best, right? Everyone wants to be their strongest. Uh, and, and COVID-19 has also also been, been an issue. Liz Cambage is still not back with the Las Vegas Aces. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, you know, there's a couple of factors that I think will impact the outcome of the championship. But Connecticut has stayed healthy. Um, they are an underdog team. You know, they're a team that, quite honestly, everyone on that roster plays like they have something to prove, has been underestimated at this league at some point in their career, has been unappreciated in this league at some time in their career. I mean, think about the, the, the journey of John Quill Jones, for example, who was the sixth player of the year in this league at one point and now is going to be an MVP. I mean, there were such <laughs> high expectations of her coming in, but, you know, she didn't do it right away. She wasn't as successful as everyone thought right away, and she feels like she's kind of been slept on, or there's a Breon January that's just had to, you know, blue-collar player just grunt and defend her way through this league, or, um, you know, Jasmine Thomas, who has been sensational. Never, No one ever thought she would be a starting point guard on a finals team, but she's been that. 
So this team just plays on a string. They're very disciplined with their with their defensive execution. They follow the scouting report. And I will say this all day, every day. That is that Kurt Miller is hands down one of the best coaches in this league. And he has his team playing just a tough style of basketball, a slow pace on the offensive end that um, has given the teams a lot of trouble. And they're extremely physical. That's the other aspect of their game, um, along with their rebounding. That's, that's hard to deal with. We're talking to Lejana Robinson on, on Spain and Fitz there, Spain, Jason Fitz. You mentioned, Liz, and obviously the Cambage situation is important for my Las Vegas Aces. Can they win the championship if she's not available to them at 100%? Yeah, they can, Jason. You know, I one thing I've said about Las Vegas all year long is that if there is a team that can take a hit, whether it be injuries or COVID, which God forbid that happen, the talent on the Las Vegas, Las Vegas Aces can, can deal with some of the unexpected things that can happen coming into a playoff and during a playoff situation. They have Asia Wilson, who's a number one pick, Kelsey Plum, that's a, that was a number one pick, um, Jackie Young, that was a number one pick. I mean, they probably have more lottery picks on that roster than anyone else. Now, are we saying that, you know, Kelsey Plum and Jackie Young are number one picks to the extent of Sue Bird and some of those others that have come along over the years? Not yet. You know, not yet, but it speaks volumes for how good they are, you know, or were in those years that they were coming out of college and how they've emerged over time. And let's be honest, when you're on a roster that's so stacked, you don't have to get 20 points every night and prove that you're you're supposed to be an overall number one pick. You just got to have one or two good nights. You got to have one or two good nights on a team that's really good. And, you know, that's all you need to really sustain you. But anyone on that team, I would say one through eight could go off for 20 points and, uh, on any given occasion. And I don't, I, I don't believe, and I would say, I would say, I don't think there's any team in the league that can boast that, that can say that. So they've got so much firepower. De'Erica Hamby coming off the bench. Raquana Williams is having a great season defensively. So long story short, they got Asia Wilson, the, uh, the current, the reigning MVP. And, yes, if Liz Cambage comes back, it's the icing on the cake. But they've also played very well in stretches without her. And, to me, they still have everything they need to win. Latrina Robinson is with us here on Spain and Fitz. Since Fitz got to ask that, I have to ask. Obviously, while Candace Parker was out, the sky slid, but they've been good since. Are they a real contender to win it all? Sarah, I don't feel good about your Chicago sky mm. headed into Ooh. the playoffs. Oh, oh. Sorry, to, sorry oh. to throw that out there. Yeah, yeah. It's been an up and down year. And quite Has honestly, I can't, I can't put my finger on it. Um, I mean, I was just in Chicago on Sunday when the Mystics blew in mm-hmm. under man. They had so many injuries. You know, Deladon obviously is out. You know, they've got their back against the wall. I will say that. They were playing with the desperation of trying to clinch that eighth spot. But Chicago just had such a lackluster performance. I mean, you make it into the playoffs. You have an opportunity to play well at home, which is another thing they haven't done this year. And I was just so unimpressed with their level of execution, their desire. Um, I, I don't know what is what's happening with that team or what's missing, but something's not there. Something's not clicking. And yes, you make it into the playoffs, but over the last couple of seasons, Chicago hasn't been able to make it into um, a series. You know, they've been eliminated in the first round and the second round. And I believe this is a team that needs to get into a series because they can be really bad on one night. Now you bring Candace Parker into the fold, hoping that she gets you over the hump and brings that championship experience and can show you how to navigate the postseason. But 
they are not playing their best basketball headed into the playoffs. They're just not. Um, that game against Washington at home, even if you don't win that game, you don't let Tina Charles go off for 30-plus for and then basically yeah. walk off with a victory. So I'm not feeling great about the sky, Sarah. I wish I had better news for you. What an exciting moment it'll be when they surprise everybody with their first victory. <laughs> uh, Lachana, thank you so much for the insight. Last day of the regular season is this Sunday, the 19th. Playoffs start on the 23rd. A lot can change between now and then. Lachana, thanks so much for the insight. Appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Have a good one. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Keep your votes coming in on Spain and Fitz Nation. Bunch of you hitting us up on the Dr. Pepper Twitter feed to vote on which NFL team needs a week to win the most. We gave you eight different teams Packers are leading right now. Some people are confused about that because the division isn't that strong. But a loss to the Lions to go 0-2 with the narratives around that team, that, that, that's rough. And then the Browns, if they were to lose to the Texans, currently leading in the other half of the poll. We'll get into more of that later. It's time for Straight Talk right now, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. And I want to talk a little bit quickly about the U.S. Women's Nationals team's response to U.S. Soccer Federation. And then, of course, uh, the big story in the gymnastics world today. And Fitz, I want to hit on the soccer very quickly, mainly because it feels like we've been going back and forth on this stuff for such a long time. It has been years of discussing the U.S. Women's National Team's fight for equal pay. And now it's turned into oftentimes a real publicity drive, right? And obviously Megan Rapinoe and the women of that team who have spoken out are gaining most of the uh, you know, support of the public because they've had so much success and because they can point to innumerable ways that they are disrespected by a federation whose sole purpose is to support them and to grow the game for boys and girls, men and women, including the absolutely egregious offenses of last year's lawsuit that immediately resulted in the firing of Carlos Rodero and a bunch of other stuff when they essentially tried to argue that basically women's lungs can hold less air and therefore they're not deserving of his vote. I mean, they really went the full caveman route. Now they come out to say that there has been an offer of an identical contract for the men's and women's teams, but the U.S. Women's Soccer Federation is saying it's nothing more than a publicity stunt. USSF's PR stunts and bargaining through the media will not bring us any closer to a fair agreement. In contrast, we're committed to bargaining in good faith to achieve equal pay in the safest working conditions possible. The proposal that USSF made recently to us does neither, to which they responded that uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation that the the real publicity stunt would be a 90-minute documentary that's one-sided, which, of course, is referring to LFG, a documentary that, by the way, the U.S. Soccer Federation was offered comment in, chose not to respond or participate in, and then unleashed a very petty seven-tweet rebuttal to it. Uh, despite the fact that it did seem like a bit of propaganda, it's, it nonetheless could have involved their statements, and they elected not to be involved. All this to say, Fitz, we're not, I don't think, any closer to an agreement, and it is very difficult to merely say equal in this case without understanding the very different things that apply when it comes to what's paid out by FIFA, what's paid out by your federation, why the teams that you play on, maternity leave, everything else. And I, I fear that we're you know, going to talk in circles again until they really sit down and find a common ground. No, and to this, I, I constantly remind people context matters and nothing simple. Like economics are not simple and business isn't simple. And 
most of us know it for whatever business we we're in. Like the number of times, even with what you and I do, we don't just sit in front of a microphone. There's a lot of information that goes into everything that happens in this, right? So people will come in and say, why didn't you do this? Or why didn't you do that? And without a real understanding for how this business works, people see that all the time. If you're a mechanic and you look at it and say, Hey, this is the way that you can be a successful mechanic. And this is how you run your shop. And this is what cars need. Like there's all of this detail that all of us outside don't have. The one thing that makes this really difficult is now we're talking about economics. So my message to everybody is the same as it's been the whole way. We need to hear from the women's national group about specifically what they don't like and what they're asking for and what's not there. Because every time they've been specific, they've done it in a way that's been really open and transparent that makes you understand what they're fighting for. So I'm not going to take equality as an answer until I've heard it from them. Yeah, and we need to hear the same from U.S. soccer. What does it mean in your mind to offer equal, and what does it mean in the context of everything else, not just in this in the way of publicly announce that to try to convince people that there's been some peace offering that, according to the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association, is not in fact there. Um, I I am not wholly one sided one or the other, but I will say that it's become very clear from some of the tactics of the U.S. Soccer Federation that if they are willing to stoop to the lows of essentially a, a saying that women are categorically and scientifically inferior to men and therefore will never be deserving regardless of anything else, you probably don't have a good leg to stand on for the argument, right? Otherwise, you would stand on the ones that are not based entirely in misogyny against the very group that represents you with the crest on their jerseys. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. This was Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. Um, another big story today, Fitz, involved Olympic gymnasts uh, telling the Senate Judiciary Committee this morning that current and former FBI agents should be held accountable for the Bureau's investigation into Larry Nasser, the disgraced former doctor for Team USA that was responsible for hundreds of girls being sexually assaulted and It was incredibly emotional to listen to, and it was Simone Biles, it was Michaela Maroney, Maggie Nichols, whose lifelong dream of competing in the Olympics was derailed because she was the first athlete, athlete A, by the investigators, or gymnast two out of those who reported the abuse. And she saw her standing within USA Gymnastics dwindle as soon as she reported the abuse of Larry Nassar. You also heard from Allie Raisman. Um, and, uh, you know, from all of them, it was don't just blame Larry Nasser, blame the entire system that enabled him to molest hundreds of people, blame the investigators who did not listen, did not show any care. Maroney talked about how telling an agent things that she hadn't yet been able to tell her mother, how she was 13 years old, telling, you know, the story of how within minutes of meeting this doctor that she was appointed by USA Gymnastics, he had inserted his fingers into her and that the FBI agent's follow-up to that was, did his treatment help you? Michaela Maroney talked about how every single person from people employed at colleges to within USA Gymnastics to in the FBI allowed Larry Nasser to continue doing this for years and years, allowed him to retire with his dignity. In fact, there was a coach at one point who made a bunch of girls sign a card for him, congratulating him on his career, even after there were hundreds of accusations. Raisman talked about how she couldn't even stand up in the shower some days after sharing her story. She had to sit on the floor to wash her hair. She just didn't have the energy because she was so drained by it. And Fitz, it's impossible to listen to and and not want to say everybody who didn't report it and who didn't act the right way was just evil. That's a cop out. They're protecting people. They're enabling jobs that they want. They're keeping themselves clean out of something. 
if we just say they're evil, we don't have to actually address what they did and try to change it. The only way to hold keep people accountable, prevent this from happening is to look at the reasons why people make these decisions, even in the face of very young girls telling them what's happened to them. Yeah, the hardest part through all of this was having to hear it again. Uh, but the most important part of all of it at the same time felt like hearing it again, because right. one of the things that has to happen in this process is we've got to continue to have these conversations in such a loud way that current victims to anybody feel comfortable stepping up and that we also remember that there's a culture we're not allowed to create. We're not allowed to allow certain things to continue to happen. Accountability when things like this happen is more important than ever. And I think incredibly as important as everything that we've already seen is what happens to anybody that didn't do their job the way that it needed to be done throughout the entirety of the process. Because we that's the only way that you change how business is done and you change how people approach awful, awful things. This was obviously not handled the right way. So the hope is that everybody that was a part of that is held accountable. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's sort of unfathomable to keep being reminded the years that these women and former uh, Olympic athletes who represented us on the highest stage and made us all so proud and did exactly what was asked of them at every turn, how many times they have to throw themselves back down and relive all of this to look into the faces of, in the case of some folks today, just wanted to take the time to pat themselves on the back for having daughters and how sad they feel. That's not enough. We don't need you to feel sorry for them and say how much this shouldn't have happened. We all know that. We need you to tell us why it's not going to happen again. And for years now, that has not been the response from the people in charge. And I, I hope that their bravery is worth something because it's really a shame that they've had to keep doing this. Speaking of a shame, we're going to talk about the Raiders next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app at Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. I'm just going to be honest with y'all. Y'all think I'm insufferable now. My God, let's just imagine if the Raiders start 2-0 with the win over the Ravens and the Steelers. Good God, by a week from right now, I will absolutely be unbearable. In the meantime, let's get some uh, some good football analysis, unlike mine, from the Goodyear Hotline, where we're going to be joined by our good buddy ESPN NFL insider Field Yates. You can check him out, co-host of the Fantasy Football uh, Fantasy Focus Football Podcast. Sorry about that, Field. Field, I owe you a thank you because you pinch hit for me on Monday night on our new digital show. I was supposed to be there. I was in Vegas. Turns out I took a little vacation. So now that you've seen my beloved Raiders win the game, they're headed to the playoffs, right? I could just go ahead and start celebrating. Yeah, actually, I was thinking maybe Fitz. You know, I've never had a tattoo before. Um, and you obviously have many of them. I'm thinking Raiders, Super Bowl champions, maybe across my back, perhaps rather than like Eagles wings, I could do Raiders just script right across the back. Uh, Sarah might have some uh, design perspective as well if she wants to contribute to this, but it doesn't feel too hasty to make that decision after just one game. Sarah, I think he's mocking me. I I think think that is. I think he might be. I think he might be. Although so far you've been, you've been more spot on than me having the Raiders last in their division. Although just one week, we'll see what happens. Hey field. Speaking of just one week, I want to talk real football, but since you are a fantasy expert, I want to quickly ask you after that week one, what is your biggest fantasy downgrade and biggest fantasy upgrade? Yeah, the downgrade might be James Robinson. That was just a little bit surprising to see the Jaguars play Carlos Hyde as much as they did. Last year, people remember that James Robinson was like this incredible find off the waiver wire. He played so much. I mean, he played just 
basically every snap for Jacksonville last season. New coach, and of course, Urban Meyer is going to do things as he sees fit. And mm-hmm. he brought aboard Carlos Hyde, a player that he had during his Ohio State days, and he played more than I was expecting him to. So that might be my downgrade. Saquon Barkley makes me a little bit concerned as well, but still very early coming off of that knee injury. The biggest upgrade has to be Elijah Mitchell, the 49ers running back who now is rostered in nearly 75% of leagues on ESPN.com. A guy who basically everybody other than Adam Schefter had no idea about. Shefty was telling us on Sunday morning that, hey, he knows the 49ers really like this player and he's the number two on their running back depth chart. What none of us knew, obviously, was that Raheem Mostert would last just two carries before he suffered a knee injury. It's going to cost him this season. Brutal. So Elijah Mitchell, the next man up in that San Francisco backfield. And Kyle Shanahan knows a thing or two about getting great running back play. We're talking to Field Yates and Field. Speaking of next man up, that's what they're dealing with at the quarterback position for the Washington football team. So what is the loss of Ryan Fitzpatrick due to whatever playoff hopes that team may have had? Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, I, I think it, it definitely hurts them, no, and that's stating the obvious here, right? Um, now, some people will say, hey, they made the playoffs last year with, you know, a similar, I mean, really a worse quarterback situation than what they have now with Tyler Taylor Heineke for a while. But the rest of the division was not nearly as good as I think Philly and perhaps Dallas will be this year. I know Dallas obviously has major defensive concerns, but they're going to score a ton of points. That much we can all agree on. And then Philly, whether people think it's the opponent they played or whether they think that, you know, it's just too early to draw any conclusions. I think Philly is going to be better than a lot of people expected them be coming into this season. So it definitely hurts Washington. I think they had a chance. I think they were the favorites coming into the season. But as if you'd told me that I had to recast my ballot for who would win the NFC East right now, I'd have to think long and hard about them. Taylor Heineke is going to be fine. I think they actually win tomorrow night. Uh, I just don't know if the ceiling is the same with Taylor Heineke under center as opposed to Ryan Fitzpatrick. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio, talking to our ESPN NFL insider, Field Yates. On the other side of the ball, or the other side of the field, I guess, tomorrow night, the Giants. And I'm already hearing people say it's time to give up on Daniel Jones. Too many turnovers, not enough of the good stuff. Have we seen enough of him with weapons that are healthy to make that decision field? Yeah, I mean, Sarah, we're getting close to that point. The difference between Daniel Jones and other quarterbacks who are on the hot seat is that Daniel Jones' backup is Mike Glennon. And Glennon's a veteran who's sort of been there, done that. And when I say been there, done that, I mean that he's shown time and again that he's not a starting quarterback in this yep. league other than a spot start here or there. So Don't I, don't I know, know it. Remember the down Bears the, picked yeah, him up for a little start. while. Sarah, I mean, but I was thinking, you know, there are other places he went. It didn't yeah, start yeah. as well. So I can have maybe to remember just, that. you know, slide the Bears years under the rug. Yeah, there we um, go. Appreciate that. But here's what I would say is this is not about, like, what happens at some point during this season. This is entirely about what – potentially could happen when the season is over. And as we all know, the Giants already own a second first-round pick next year. That was part of the Justin Fields trade that they made, or the trade with the Bears that they used uh, the pick to grab Justin Fields with. Congratulations, Sarah. Um, That they have an extra first-round pick. And, you know, this roster is good enough in some spots that you think they should be winning sooner rather than later. They got a bunch of money tied up in expensive veterans. They don't have time to waste. So if Daniel Jones struggles this year, I mean, just start scribbling. I'm no Mel Kuyper, but, you know, start scribbling in whatever quarterback prospect that you like next to the New York Giants name in a 2022 first-round mock draft. Hmm. 
Hmm. Speaking of you know, putting money into veterans field, one of the veterans that wanted more money was Chandler Jones for the Cardinals. He was pretty vocal about everything. Then he came in and racked up five sacks against a Titans team that I thought was going to have a dynamic offense. Boy, was I wrong. So when you see a player go off like that, I know it's only week one, but what impact, if any, does that have in your mind in the actual contract negotiations? Yeah, I think if anything, it sort of at least if you'd like, it can kickstart the evaluation or the conversation one more time. You know, for the Cardinals, the question, I don't think it was ever about whether Chandler Jones is still a really good player. I think one of the things that happens when deals don't get done between a notable player and a team is that we say publicly, you know, the team no longer values the player. That's not usually the case, and I can't imagine it's the case in Arizona. They definitely value Chandler Jones. They've made him one of the highest paid players in defense in, in the NFL over the past five or six years. I'm sure the evaluation that they're having is he's going to be 32 when his contract expires. And how many 32 year old pass rushers maintain their value for three, four five seasons? Cause I can't imagine Chandler Jones is looking for like one extra year right now, right? He probably wants a deal that takes him to the age of 35 and, there have been outliers, guys who played for a long time at that position. Dwight Freeney is a good example of somebody. Julius Peppers remained productive. John Abraham remained productive. But there are far more examples of guys who the cliff came, and it was perhaps unexpected. But that's what I'm assuming the evaluation is for Arizona, is that if we can't find the number we're comfortable with, do we have to imagine what life could look like without Chandler Jones? And it's not a comfortable reality to have to examine, but – uh, I think what they're fearful of, my guess, and this is just a guess, I mean, let me be very clear about that, is that when you haven't reached an agreement with a player of this caliber, it's that you're forecasting how the contract could look in a few years. And this is a player who, as we know, by the way, is coming was coming off of during this negotiation, a year where he had zero sacks in five games last season and tore his biceps, which cost him the final 11 games. So a little bit more complicated than a standard Star wants a new deal. Let's give that said star a new deal. Hey, Field, I know you're super connected to a bunch of teams, and Field Yates is with us here on Spain and Fitz. What are you hearing about COVID this season? Because Fitz and I have a theory that we might see more players miss because there's a sense of false security about the vaccine, because maybe their protocols that are a little bit looser for good reason will then be pushed even more. And last year, there was more of a real set in stone expectation. Are you hearing that at all? And is that expectation different for you? Yeah, I think teams feel this year, not that things are less out of their control, but protocol is a little bit. And what I mean by that is, you know, even when a player is fully vaccinated, if he tests positive and is asymptomatic, as an example, it's hard to test out, like to, to go from being asymptomatic on Monday to by Wednesday, even if you remain asymptomatic, to be negative all of a sudden. Like, this just not how viral load typically works within a body. So the hard, the tricky part is, you know, last year I think teams just had sort of accepted it was a reality. You could wake up on Sunday morning and have five guys not available to you, but you were testing daily. Obviously now the testing protocols are less frequent, especially amongst vaccinated players. So there is a potential for a blindside. That being said, Sarah, this is, these are organizations that they talk about preparing for every situation, and usually that's within the context of you're uh, you know in the first round of the, of the NFL draft, a player that could be unexpectedly available for you, or you know during training camp, 
an undrafted free agent looks better than a first-round pick. But COVID is something that's become a reality for these teams for the past year plus. And I've gotten the sense that while you know things feel a little bit more normal because they've been dealing with this for so long, teams also do sort of stress that you know it's it's not like it's decidedly easier because if someone right. tests positive Thursday before a game, vaccinated or not, you have to all of a sudden account for that person not being available. You guys can follow him on Twitter, at Field Yates. Be sure to check him out everywhere because you're basically everywhere this time of year. Field, really appreciate your insights and your thoughts, my friend. Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right, guys. Take care. Thanks for having me on, as always. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. We are just week one into the NFL season. Week one, and the hot takes are flying already. A lot of them about the rookie quarterbacks. And I have to admit, that's one of the reasons this has been one of the most exciting starts to a season in a while. Every time we have one of these big crops of young quarterbacks, it just feels like a possible fresh start for a number of franchises. And off to a good start for a few, some hiccups for another couple, and just a few snaps for a couple that we'd like to see more of. We're going to talk about all of them now. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Joining us now on the Goodyear Hotline, ESPN NFL Draft Analyst, Executive Director of the Reese's Senior Bowl, and an 18-year NFL scout, uh, Jim Nagy, joining us now to talk about it. And Jim, you know, I'm going to selfishly start with my team I have not been angry with the Bears for deciding to use Justin Fields sparingly early on. I'm of the opinion that if Matt Nagy's job is on the line and if they think that Andy Dalton's actually more prepared to handle a full playbook right now, I'm cool with Justin Fields getting some of those you know, snaps and learning his way in until they feel totally comfortable. Did you see anything that would tell you otherwise in the preseason or those couple snaps that you'd say, you know, he's got to get out there right away? Well, hey, Sarah, I appreciate you guys having me on tonight. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think, and I haven't talked to anyone with the Bears about this, but I think the approach, uh, and this goes back to Matt Nagy working with Andy Reid for as long as he did. I've always felt like Andy's blueprint with, with Donovan McNabb when he came out was the perfect blueprint for a rookie quarterback. So, you know, they go in the offseason, they, they draft Donovan, they bring in Doug Peterson to be the starter, right? Um, everybody, I don't even know if people remember Doug Peterson that he, that he played, but he had a nice long career as a backup. So they bring in, they bring in Doug, who Andy was with in Green Bay. Um, you know, he, he shoulders the burden of a lost season. So I, I don't know what week they inserted uh, Donovan, but it was late. You know, they were, they were like a 3-10 you know, football team at that point. So the season was lost. The pressure wasn't on Donovan. Um, in that Philly fan base. And I think that that's probably the smart move here. You, you ride with Andy Dalton for a while. If the season's not going great and, and that will be on Andy Dalton, that pressure will be on Andy. Um, then Justin can come and play a little more loose, a little more free, knowing that um, if they're out of the playoff race, it's not on him. Um, so I think that's the plan. And there was enough good stuff from the preseason, plenty of good stuff to feel good about where Justin Fields is at developmentally. Um, I think that's probably the plan that, that Chicago's going with right now. We're talking to Jim Nagy, ESPN NFL draft analyst on Spain and Fitz. So I'm always interested. You, you're around these guys so much around uh, the Reese Senior Bowl. You get to see so many of these kids. So going into week one, was there a rookie that we, you were most excited to get down and see that you spent time with that you really wanted to see in this new environment? Uh, you know, Jason, <laughs> a lot of them. I like to see all of them, how they'll prepare. But um, the one I was most excited about after the week <laughs> and having to go back to see how he performed was Elijah Mitchell, um, the sixth-round pick of the 49ers, who really got 
thrust in there. Um, you know, when Raheem Mostert went down early in the game and, and they put in, you know, they, 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 they put him in and they put in Elijah and he runs, he, he breaks off a huge run early and then goes for over 100 yards. And I think I read something the, uh, yesterday where he's the first day three running back to have a 100-yard rushing performance in week one of his rookie season. So, so that was pretty cool. Um, you know, I, I was really interested to see what Mac Jones would look like just because he was of that rookie quarterback crew. He was the one guy in Mobile last year. So I, I also paid close attention to that game with Ian Tua. Yeah, it feels like so much of what we don't discuss enough in terms of rookie quarterbacks, and I think in the last few years we've gotten more into it, Jim, is the context around where they're playing, who's starting alongside them, how good is their line, how good is their head coach, what are the weapons they're throwing to it. feels like instead we always just reduce the conversation to should they start right away or should they sit and learn behind someone, and that's completely dependent on the situation. I think Mac Jones is in one of the best situations because it feels like that's a real team that could contend there in the Patriots compared to some of the other rookies, right? No, well said. No, no question about that. Uh, you know, just timing, fit, personnel. Quarterback's a completely dependent position, as you guys know. So, you know, we do, we do critique that position probably more harshly than any other. But Mac's in a great spot. I know that, you know, some people were kind of, Coming out of that game against the Dolphins, you know, I think some people were picking apart that he was dinking and dunking. Um, but you go against that Miami defense, I'm sure Brian Flores was licking his chops going against a rookie. Um, you know, he had so many. You look at Belichick's track record against rookie quarterbacks, and obviously Brian came up under Bill. Um, I'm sure he threw a lot. I'm sure he threw a lot at Mac Jones, and I think how Mac handled it was really good. Um, you know, just to get his ball, get the ball out of his hand fast. That's what he did here in Mobile at the Senior Bowl. I mean, that's. He's so smart. So as much as they tried to confuse him, I think he handled it well um, and put them in position to win. But that's a really good Miami defense. So even coming out of a loss, I do feel like most Patriots fans are optimistic after that performance, and I think they should be. So, Jim, you know, I'm of the opinion that as we see modern offense change in the NFL to help young quarterbacks be successful more quickly, it also, as a byproduct, helps young wide receivers because more college concepts are run in the NFL. It makes it easier to come in and, and maybe make a mark. With that being said, we've seen wide receiver class after wide receiver class the last couple of years that are great. Who stands out to you right now in this rookie class that maybe we're not talking enough about that could have quick impact? You know, Jason, I'm just thinking about I'm, I'm focused on this year's class for next year. And I'll say I'll say this off, off the bat. You know, we've had two really good classes back to back. Those wide receiver groups have been great. This is going to be a little bit leaner year. So if your team went out and got a receiver the last couple of years, you're you're in pretty good shape. Um, you know, but but this class, there, there's a lot of talent across the board. I'm trying to think of some big performances from week one. Obviously, all those those first rounders scored again, I think historically, I think I read something where that was this was the first week where all the first round picks scored a touchdown. So, you know, I think everyone picked apart Devontae Smith. I think that one was interesting. He was a really interesting case study because as scouts, you don't want to get caught up in outliers, right? You don't want right. you don't want to draft a team full of outliers. Um, and at 170 pounds, Devontae is the true outlier. But um, it was good to see him go out there and have chemistry with Jalen Hurts week one and, and do what he did. I think he's going to be a, make a huge impact for them this year. Um, so it's going to with, with he and Jalen Hurts. I think that combination week one, how Jalen looked and how Smitty looked, um, Philly fans got to feel great. 
Yeah, Jamar Chase also feels a lot better after getting that performance in after all the drops in the preseason had people convinced that he wasn't able to catch anymore. He made it. He he, he figured out the football and, and all the lines or lack thereof on the football that he was talking about. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to Jim Nagy, ESPN NFL draft analyst, executive director of the Reese's Senior Bowl, 14, sorry, 18-year NFL scout and four-time Super Bowl champ. We spent a lot of time talking about how rookies need to adjust to the size and speed of the NFL. On both the offensive and defensive side, what are the other most common ways that rookies um, are, are not yet ready or need time to adjust? Well, I, I think the, the best answer to that, Sarah, is just the mental, it mentally. Um, you know, the, the college concepts, like, like Jason said, there, there's a, you're getting rookies you know, on the field more quickly because I think the NFL's adapting. I think we're we're seeing an evolution of young coach in the league who's doing a really nice job of of being creative yet simplifying it so you can get young guys on the field and, and using a lot of college stuff. But I think you just look back to uh, I brought up Elijah Mitchell earlier for San Francisco, which you got to look at Trey Sermon, their third round pick, who I thought they stole Trey Sermon in the third round. I mean, you look at that Ohio State team last year when they actually put him in as the starter in December and what they looked like when he was on the field. He ran for you know, close to 600 yards and two starts late in the year. I thought he was going to be the guy. I actually drafted Trey Sermon to be, to be on my fantasy team. <laughs> um, but they, they went with the sixth rounder first over Trey, the third rounder. And, and I have to imagine some of that was, was just playbook stuff. So, you know, as, as, good a teams, as, as good a job as teams are doing right now to simplifying it, I think that that's where some of these guys are, are still, you know, is, is holding some of these guys back. Awesome stuff. We love to hear that. We love to get an inside look at what's beyond the kind of more obvious. Well, it's just very fast and everyone's very big, uh, which is true. It's all very true. Uh, but we like, we like to hear more of what they're going to struggle with as they adjust and certainly some pretty good outings from a couple of them. Jim, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Jace. Take care. Jim Nagy with us here on Spain and Fitz. By the way, uh, I wanted to point out earlier in the show, there was a heated competition between a dog and a horse. Uh, the horse being me, the dog being uh, Dan Orlovsky. And we just got some news on Spain and Fitz Nation. At least one person considered me the victor. At Jem Knitter, who is one of our best and most loyal listeners, hit us up on the Dr. Pepper Twitter feed. Your horse is better, Sarah Spain. Highly questionable for the win, as always. That dog by Dan Orlovsky is a close second, though. I mean, that's that's Dan. It's unbelievable. I still think Dan wins, but Jen, uh, Jem Knitter, I should say, uh, I appreciate your thoughts, Gail. Uh, you always have my back. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive makes bundling easy and affordable. Get a multi-policy discount by combining your car, home, motorcycle, commercial, auto, and more. All your protection in one place. Bundle and save at Progressive.com. Coming up, we've got some polls to pay off. Week two in the NFL, who needs a win the most? And David Pollock said something couldn't have been more right about. We'll play it for you. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz with you on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Earlier in the show, we were talking about week two in the NFL, which starts already tomorrow. We've spent so much time reacting to week one. We're going to get another look at all these teams tomorrow and the rest of the weekend. And Fitz, you know, we talked yesterday about the most surprisingly good and surprisingly bad elements of week one. And week two is so important in terms of reinforcing whether what we saw was an anomaly or the norm. And football, I would say more so than any other sport, 
there are so many questions when the season starts. With the NBA, it's how many stars you got. You know, there'll be some surprises and ups and downs, but we have a pretty good idea early on of who's going to be great and who's not. In baseball, the entire reason you can, I don't know, sell off all the stars on your team at once right before the trade deadline, breaking the hearts and killing the souls of your greatest fans, is because you're pretty aware of whether or not you're going to be able to contend not only that year, but in the coming years, and you start rebuilding. In football, the parity and also the, the shifts back and forth when you add a couple players is enough that we can have an idea. But now is when we start to actually find out if our expectations for these teams coming into this season are actually valid or not. Well, the hardest part, to your point, is that, you know, I've, I've watched the last couple of seasons in my fandom, a Raiders team that's jumped out, what, 6-1, six 6-2, and one, six and two, you know, right, every year. Right. And then all of a sudden you see it normalized. Like, the couple of things that I think we forget is that early on, usually – we're saying, hey, schedule matters. Like, are you playing good teams or bad teams? How healthy is everybody? That's a college football conversation that I think has become more and more a part of the NFL lexicon in the last couple of years. But then the other side of it is why I think as we open the show tonight talking about who's under the most pressure, it's not just who's under the most pressure to win. It's who's under the most pressure to prove that a weakness isn't a weakness. Who's under the most pressure to come out and play better in certain elements? Because the game is so hard to predict week in and week out. That's why Vegas gets rich. But realistically, as you look at it, the the most thing the thing we've got to look at the most is does Aaron Rodgers look better? You know, does the Titans offensive line play better? Like those are the very specific things that we need to see to have a better idea because I'm not sure that we can make huge statements after one or two weeks. Yeah, absolutely true. We still will, and we do. Uh, but I don't know if we should. <laughs> and that's why <laughs> Fair. we always Fair. do good take or hot take because there are always going to be hot takes flying in about you know people who are already done with Daniel Jones with the Giants, people who think that Aaron Rodgers is giving up on the Packers, any number of other things, maybe you know that Josh Allen might have been an anomaly last season instead of part of a gradual growth that will keep going up. We asked you guys whether you think some of the teams that struggled in week one and took an L – are most in need of a win in week two or can get by without. We had to split it into two because we had about eight teams that we thought really, really were on the on the um, hot seat. And the Packers won the, the first group of four with 51% of the vote, followed by the Bills, then the Cowboys, then the Titans. Obviously, part of that is who they're playing. The Packers have the Lions. They should win that, and it will be an ugly media scene if they don't. Uh, if they lose to the Lions and go 0-2, but their division is all 0-4. So you could certainly argue that the Bills are going to want to get a divisional win versus Miami and prove that last week uh, was an anomaly. The Titans, uh, it's a tough matchup with the Seahawks, but that's a team that looked so bad that if they lay another egg, that's a much bigger deal to me than a Cowboys team that, of course, wants the win, but at least looked good against a really good Bucks team. Yeah, and a Cowboys team that, frankly is going to have a little time to get everything caught up because the Giants, as we know, are not good. Mm -hmm. uh, the Washington football team is now without their starting quarterback uh, for an extended amount of time. So what's that mean? I, I, the one team that maybe we're not paying enough attention to over there is like Philly sitting in the corner saying, hey, if y'all don't care, we played really well and we won in week one. I mean, they're not wrong, but they did it against the Falcons and the Falcons are mm -hmm. not good. So like, again, how do you sort of evaluate Philly when you're evaluating a one game sample size? We saw yep. so little from any of the starters in the preseason and you're making that uh, evaluation against a really bad football team. There are going to be a whole lot of sad people with Jalen Hurts jerseys that they just bought if it happened to be a one-game sample that didn't prove true because after the week one win, he had the second best-selling NFL jersey, a 500% increase in sales. So you could tell the Philly fans are hyped about that. They think yeah, but, it was but, but for wait, real. 
like, isn't that weird? Like, to me, what's weird is you had all offseason to buy the jersey. Yeah. So you saw something in that one game yeah. that suddenly got that rid was of it. all of your confidence. That like, was it. You had he confidence also- issues all summer, and now you're like, oh, one game against the Falcons. Now I'm going to go spend the 200 Yeah, bucks. I think that's it. They wanted some proof of concept. He also switched his jersey number back in April, so maybe some of them were wearing that jersey number two that he wore as a rookie, and they wanted to have the jersey number one if he was going to be playing as well as he did week one. Uh, we'll see if that can carry over. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, talking about the NFL teams that most need a win in week two. The second half was dominated by the Browns, who earned 50% of the vote, followed by the Ravens, then the Vikings, then the Colts. The Browns are taking on the Texans. That's a big part of it. Not only did they uh, slide at the end there against the Chiefs in a game that was very winnable for them and not finish strong, but the Texans are obviously a team they should be able to beat. That's why they're on top. The Ravens are playing the Chiefs. The Ravens need a win. The Ravens want to bounce back from that Monday night crazy game. But against the Chiefs, it's probably not going to happen, which puts them in an 0-2 hole unless they could figure something out there. And then the Vikings taking on Arizona and the Colts taking on the Rams, both teams. The Vikings aren't as much to me. I don't, I don't expect that much from them. I don't think it's that big of a deal if they go 0-2 because I don't think they're going to be in contention. Whereas I think you were feeling pretty high about the Colts as a team. Yeah, I was really high about about the Colts as a team. And now I'm trying to figure out, was that just week one, got to get things together? Also remembering that uh, through no fault of anybody's but his own, at least in part, Carson Wentz right. missed a, extra time. And we all saw the foot injury. So when you put that together, is Carson Wentz just going to need a little time to get great in that offense? I mean, Jonathan Taylor should be one of the best running backs in the league. They've got all of the talent you could possibly ask for. They just they got beat badly by the Seahawks. The Seahawks really outplayed mm-hmm. them. So to me, again, it's not that you lost the game. It's how you how look you doing lost. it that suddenly has me uh, questioning whether or not I was too hype on the Colts. Well, the Bears, uh, how they lost and the fact that they lost were both hurtful to me. I kind of expected them to take an L to the Rams. But the defense looks to be aging faster, and the narrative around it being one of the best in the league seems just that, a narrative and not a reality after the performance against the Rams. Justin Fields came in on a couple snaps. I have heard everybody but me, for the most part, argue that it's BS that he is not starting. David Pollock. Thank goodness. ESPN football and also was on Get Up and very smartly addressed what's likely going on. I get it. And, and the talent is so insane. And you love what you see from Justin Fields. When you saw the preseason, 3.3 seconds per attempt. Led the NFL by far. Andy Dalton, week one versus the Rams. Getting the ball out of his hands in almost a second faster. Yes, we can be enamored with the talent. We can pour into that as much as we want because it is great. It is going to take Justin Fields time to learn how to process things. There's not a lot of protections that are diagnosed and drawn out at Ohio State. He doesn't have to worry about that as much. When you look at the Chicago Bears, they are doing what's best for their organization. Yeah, Fitz, it's not about just, hey, we want to protect him from getting hurt behind that line. It's, hey, can he read a defense quickly enough and get the ball out quickly enough for us to be effective? And that's why I think you look at the physical ability and you say, of course he's better than Andy Dalton. But Andy Dalton has 100-plus starts and two previous 4,000-yard seasons. He knows how to read a defense and get the ball out quick. He might actually truly be the better choice right now. And there's no reason to believe they're lying because their jobs are on the line. They don't want to keep him in any longer than they have to. That's the part I don't understand. Like, are we just presuming that Matt Nagy goes home and says to his family, hey, you know, we're not making the right decision here, but it's okay. Like, the presumption here is that the guys see him in practice every day. And as much as we as the outside may want to think that this is simple, uh, it's also simple to Matt Nagy. Like, he's in the room making the decision based on what he sees 
at practice, and that's why practice has to matter. This, I, I just think we've we've really twisted this thing because of what we all want. Right, we want that, and also because we, Andy Dalton is a really good, uh, you know, example of uh, an also ran veteran guy who's never going to be great. That people can hold up next to Justin Fields and act like the Bears are just making dumb decisions. There is no legitimate reason for them to make that decision unless they truly believe that right now he gives them a better shot. At SG Smith Double O. Just hit me up on the Dr. Pepper Twitter feed, giving us some news from Spain and Fitz Nation said, Spain from the bleachers, spitting facts. I don't know what that's in reference to, but I'm going to assume this. The whole show, every conversation, every word I've said, I'm just going to leave it at that. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.